0: Inna alhamdulillah, hamda nahmaduhu wa nasta'inuhu wa nastaghfiruhu wa na'udhu billahi min shururi anfusina wa min sayyiati a'malina man yahdihillahu fala mudilla lahu wa man yudlil fala hadiya lahu wa ashhadu an la ilaha illa Allah wahdahu la sharika lahu wa ashhadu anna Muhammadan 'abduhu wa rasuluhu amma ba'd today it's a one off lesson regarding the topic of hajj mentioned that perhaps some of the individuals it would be suitable for them now during this time to discuss the topic of Hajj so just as a one-off lecture just to mention some of the virtues of Hajj and to mention how Hajj is to be performed and carried out just a brief overview so that even those who haven't attended yet haven't been able to go yet then at least you have an overview of what Hajj is and what is supposed to be done and how it's supposed to be done so with regards to hajj then, we know that hajj is one of the pillars of Islam. We know hajj is one of the pillars of Islam and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned that in the Qur'an. In Surah Ali Imran, ayah number 97. Surah Ali Imran, ayah number 97. Sabila." فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ غَنِيٌ عَنِ الْعَالَمِينَ. That for Allah upon the people is the Hijjulbayti من استضاع إليه سبيلًا to do the Hajj of the house, Sayyid Ka'aba for the one who is able. That is a right that Allah has upon the people. It is an obligation upon the people. It is one of the pillars of Islam. Also you know from the famous hadith that we've now covered in the forty hadith lesson, بُنِيَ الْإِسْلَامُ عَلَى خَمْسٍ شَهَادَةِ أَن لا إلَهَ إلَّا اللَّهُ وَأَنَّ مُحَمَّدًا رَسُولُ اللَّهِ وَإِقَامِ الصَّلَاةِ وَإِيتَاءِ وَحَجِّ الْبَيْتِ وَصَومِ رَمَضَانِ. In that hadith that we covered, it was mentioned that Islam is built upon five pillars. Firstly, the testification that none has the right to be worshipped or deserve to be worshipped in truth, except Allah, and that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah, and the establishment of the prayer, and the giving of the zakat, and the hajj to the house of Allah, and the fasting. So we know that this hajj, it is a pillar from the pillars of Islam. Regarding the Hajj, then, how many times did the Prophet make Hajj himself? And when? So, how many times did the Prophet do Hajj? The once? Sure. Okay, and when was that then? So, the Prophet did Hajj once. In which year was that? The conquest was in the 8th year of Hijrah. Hajj was not in that year. The farewell speech. But when was that then? It was in the final year, the 10th year of Hijrah. And it's mentioned that the Prophet ﷺ died in the 11th year of Hijrah. In fact, some of the scholars say that the Prophet ﷺ died just a couple of months after that Hajj. Just two or three months after the final Hajj, the Prophet ﷺ died. That is mentioned by some of the scholars. So, the final Hajj, the only Hajj, was done by the Prophet ﷺ in the tenth year of Hijrah. In the ninth year of Hijrah, the year before, the Prophet ﷺ had sent some of the companions to go. He had sent some of the companions to go. To do what? To go and make sure that the mushrikeen and their likes are no longer performing the types of acts that they used to perform around the Kaaba. We know that the mushrikeen used to do hajj as well. But how did they used to do hajj? They used to do it with shirk. They used to perform Hajj and they used to go around the Kaaba, they used to do those things. They used to go to Muzdalifah, they used to do those things. But their acts and their worship were based upon shirk, even their talbiyah. Labbek, Allahumma, Labbek. They used to add words of shirk into the talbiyah. They used to say, Allah, you have partners in the talbiyah. Labbek, Allahumma, Labbek. They would add at the end that, Allah, you have partners. And we'll come to that. So they used to do it in that way and they used to go around the Kaaba naked. They used to do these activities. So in the ninth year of Hijrah, the Prophet ﷺ sent, he sent uh, some of the companions, Ali ibn Abi Talib, Abu Bakr As-Siddiq radiyallahu anhumah, he sent them and others to go and to make sure and to announce to the people that these activities will no longer take place, to forbid those activities. So they went and they forbade those activities in the ninth year, and then in the next year, when all of those activities were now stopped and it was clean, the Prophet ﷺ came and performed the Hajj. What about Umrah just for benefit? How many times did the Prophet ﷺ do Umrah in his lifetime? Four. Any other opinions? Everybody agreed on four? No? <laughs> Correct, Four. Prophet did Umrah four times. When? Three of them were done in the month which has just gone by. The 11th month of the Islamic calendar, which has just gone by. Today now is the final month of the Islamic calendar. In the 11th month of the Islamic calendar, three of the Umras were done. The final one was done in Sha'ban. The last one was done in Sha'ban. They were the four Umras of the Prophet ﷺ. And they are mentioned in the seerah. What about the virtue and the reward of a person then who performs this Umrah or performs the hajj? There are many narrations. One of them here now, the hadith of Abu Huraira. رضي الله عنه أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال العمرة إلى العمرة Lima لما بينهما والحج المبرور ليس له جزاء إلا الجنة متفق عليه This hadith which is agreed upon by Al-Bukhari and Muslim that one Umrah to the next Umrah is an expiation for that which is between them. One Umrah to the next Umrah it wipes out the minor sins in between. And there are lots of narrations that talk about this type of thing. الْخَمْسِ وَالْجُمْعَةُ إِلَى الْجُمْعَةُ إِلَى رَمَضَانِ لِمَا بَيْنَهُنَّ That one prayer to the next prayer, in between there is an expiation, a wiping out of the minor sins. One Jumu'ah to the next Jumu'ah, in between there is an expiation, a wiping out of the minor sins. One Ramadan to the next Ramadan, the same thing is mentioned. And here now, one Umrah to the next Umrah, then it is an expiation, wiping out of the minor sins in between. As for the major sins, then they require repentance. The Hajj itself, it mentions regarding the Hajj that the one who performs al hajjul al And some of the scholars say that the Mabroor Hajj is a Hajj where a person comes back afterwards in a better state than when he went. A person goes in a particular state, he's committing certain acts. But once he goes and performs that Hajj in the proper manner, without sinning or disobedience, he performs it correctly and he comes back a better person and in a better state. In a better state than he was before he went. That indicates that your Hajj is Mabroor. That it's been accepted in that way. And other scholars say that the Mabroor Hajj is basically the Hajj which you perform correctly and it is accepted by Allah. So the Hajj which is accepted by Allah or where you come back and you are in a better state, and it's been accepted by Allah, then there is no other reward for that other than paradise itself. The reward for that is paradise itself. That is the tremendous and magnificent reward for an individual who performs the Hajj. And it is the Hajj Mabrur, the Hajj that is accepted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is the reward the individual receives. It is paradise itself. Then we know that there are different rites of Hajj. There are different ways a person can perform Hajj. What we mean by that is the three different types of Hajj that have been mentioned in the Sunnah. So there is one type of Hajj which is known as at tamattu At-Tamattu'a. And there is one type known as al-qiran, and there is one type known as al-ifrad. The tamattu' Hajj tamattu' haj, is when a person goes to Mecca. He makes his ihram, goes into the intention of the ihram, he goes and he performs umrah. He does the tawaf, he does the sa'i, he cuts the hair or shaves it then comes out of his ihram. He performs the umrah. Once he's finished the umrah, he takes his ihram off, he finishes his intention, his umrah is done, now he's normal again. Wear his normal clothes, everything normal, there's no problem, he's not in ihram anymore. Then when it comes to the 8th day of Dhul-Hijjah, in roughly a week's time from now, then he goes back into ihram and performs the rites of hajj. Because the rites of hajj, they start on the 8th of Dhul-Hijjah. Which will be Sunday. Next Sunday. Next Sunday will be the 8th of Dhul-Hijjah. So imagine now if a person has gone today on their flight. Tomorrow they arrive in Mecca. They have got their ihram and everything before they go past the miqat. They go to Mecca and they perform their umrah. They do an umrah. Then they go to Medina to relax for a few days. Then next Sunday, they go back to Makkah in ihram again. They put the ihram on again and make the intention again. And go back on the 8th day and then perform hajj. That's called a tamattu' hajj. Where you've done an umrah. Then you've taken a break in between. Without your ihram, everything gone, finished. Then you go back into ihram on the 8th day of the hijjah and perform the rites of hajj. So you've done an umrah and you've done the hajj all together in that one visit. With a break in between. That's why it's called tamattu'. Tamattu' means to relax. So you do your umrah, and then you finish your ihram and relax. Finish your ihram and relax. Then on the 8th day of the hijjah, you go back into the ihram and perform the hajj. So now you've done the umrah, and then taken a break, and then done the hajj. That is known as tamattu'. Then there is one type which is qiran. Qiran is where an individual... He makes the intention of doing an Umrah and the Hajj in the same intention. So when you get to the Miqat, the boundary, then you have your Ihram and everything ready, you make your intention for Umrah and Hajj, all together in one intention. So when you get to Makkah, then you perform the Umrah and the Hajj, all of it in one go, the Tawaf, the sa'i, it's all mixed in. You do all of that together in one go, you don't take your Ihram off after the Umrah, You do the Umrah, you do the Hajj, all of it in one go, you keep your Ihram on. That's called the Qiran. Qiran means to join something up. So now you join up the Umrah with the Hajj in one go, you don't take off your Ihram in between. That's known as the Qiran type. Then there is one which is known as Ifrad. And Ifrad is when you make the intention for just Hajj, you don't make any Umrah. You don't do Umrah at all, it's just Hajj. That is the Ifrad type. So tamattu' you do an umrah, then come out of ihram and relax for a while. Then on the eighth day, go back into ihram and do hajj. That's tamattu' hajj. Qiran is where you go into ihram with the intention of umrah and hajj all in one go. And you go and do everything in one go. You don't come out of your ihram after your umrah. After the umrah, the tawaf, the sa'i, all of it together, everything in one go. The ifrad, there is no umrah. It's just hajj. So there's three types of things you can do when you go on the hajj visit. So then what's the question you're going to ask now? Which is the best one to do then? What is the most rewarding or what is the best type? This is differed about amongst the scholars. There is a difference of opinion, which is the best way to do hajj. Is it tamatu' to go there and do umrah first and then come out of the ihram, then go back into ihram and do the hajj? Is that the overall best way? Or is it to go and do all of that together, the umrah and the hajj in one intention? Or is it to just do the hajj and don't do an umrah at all when you go for hajj? Which is the best way? Difference of opinion amongst the scholars. What did the Prophet ﷺ do? What did the Prophet ﷺ do when he did the hajj? He did what? Which one? Quran. Quran. The scholars, they mention, and even here there may be some difference, but the scholars generally mention that the Prophet ﷺ did the Quran, The joining of the intention of Umrah and Hajj only one go. So surely, isn't that the best way then? If that's what the Prophet ﷺ did, isn't that going to be the best way? Huh? However, though, when the Prophet sallam went and the companions they went, the Prophet sallam, he told his companions, the ones who hadn't brought a sacrificial animal with them. Some of the companions and the Prophet sallam, when they went to do Hajj, they took their sacrificial animals with them from Medina. So when they get there on the day of Eid, they can sacrifice those animals. They took them with them from Medina. But some of them didn't take it with them from Medina. The ones who took it with them from Medina, if you take your sacrificial animal with you from outside of the haram in Makkah, from Medina, and you have the intention of qiran, then you have to stick to that intention of qiran. You're not allowed to take your ihram off. You have to join it, the Umrah and the Hajj. The Prophet wasalam, had done that. He had taken a sacrificial animal with him. But there were some who hadn't. There were some who hadn't taken the sacrificial animal with them from Medina. What did the Prophet tell them to do then? He told them, You change your intention to tamattu'ah. Because they hadn't brought a sacrificial animal with them. So for them, it was allowed to change their intention to the tamattu'ah hajj instead. He said to them, In that case, you change your intention To the tamattu' type of hajj. Because somebody who hasn't brought the sacrificial animal with them, before you start your tawaf, you're allowed to change the intention to that. And that's a difference of opinion and a big issue as well. But here the companions, that's what they did. So now what does that indicate to us? They're both acceptable, acceptable, but which one is better then? Now, the Prophet did the Qur'an. He did the Qur'an and he couldn't change his intention because he had brought the sacrificial animal with him. But some people who hadn't brought the sacrificial animal, he said to them, you change it, do the tamattu'. So which is better? Some scholars say, therefore, the tamattu' must be better. They say the tamattu' must be better. Why would the Prophet ﷺ tell them, the ones who haven't brought the sacrificial animal, you might as well do the tamattu'? Why would He have commanded them to change their intention from the Qur'an and from the other types to the Tamattu' type? Why would He tell them to do that? The scholars say, because that must be the best type. But the Prophet ﷺ himself couldn't go on to that type because he had brought his sacrificial animal from outside, from Medina. And if you do that, then you can't change your intention. You have to stay there. You can't take your ihram off. That's why the scholars, they say, it's mentioned that the Prophet ﷺ was saddened. And he had mentioned in the narration, the Prophet ﷺ said that there was some indication of being sad over the affair or some uh, having this feeling over the affair. That the Prophet ﷺ was unable to change the intention, but to the others, he said, you change it and do the tamattu'ah. So some scholars say, therefore, because the Prophet ﷺ told them to change to the tamattu'ah type, then the tamattu'ah type must be the best. But other scholars say, no, but the Prophet ﷺ in the end did do the Qur'an himself. So therefore that must be the best type. So there's a difference regarding that, but there are three different ways of doing the Hajj. So then just to briefly, in a nutshell, highlight how hajj is done. And everybody will have some relatives or friends or somebody who's gone. Then you'll have an idea of what's happening and how they are performing their hajj and what you're supposed to be doing if you go to do the Hajj. So when you go... The first thing obviously is that you need to go into a state of ihram. And that must be done from the miqat. The miqat are boundaries that the Prophet ﷺ specified around Mecca. Some of them are far away and some of them are close by. For example, the boundary of Medina is the furthest away, approximately 400 kilometers. And you're not allowed to go beyond that boundary until you have your ihram, everything in intention on. So these boundaries, there are five of them around Makkah. And whichever direction the people come from, they can't go past their boundary from their direction until they go into ihram and they make their intention. So now, for example, if a person is going from Medina, you've flown over there, you've gone to Jeddah, and then you've gone straight to Medina and you relax there for a while then from Medina, you're going to come now to do the Hajj. So now you're going to go to Dhul Huleifa, which is the boundary for the people of Medina. You go to Dhul Huleifa, and now when you go there, there's a masjid there, there's all types of facilities, everything. So when you arrive, it is sunnah for a person to cleanse himself before going into ihram. So you can take a ghusl for example. You cut the nails, you cut your hair, your moustache, etc. Hair from other areas of the body that needs to be removed. Take care of all of those affairs before going into the ihram. Cleanse yourself before going into the ihram. Also, you can wear perfume, um, fragrance, you can wear fragrance. The men can wear fragrance before going into the ihram. However, the fragrance must be on the body, not on your white ihram clothes. You don't put the fragrance on the white ihram clothes itself. You can put the fragrance on your body, on your skin, on your beard, etc. So you do all of that. You cleanse yourself. You put the fragrance on your body. Put your white ihram clothes on. So are you in ihram now? Once you've done all of that and you've put your white ihram clothes on, can it be said now, you are in ihram now? You are muhrim now. Can it be said? No. No. Wearing the white clothes doesn't mean you are in ihram now. Somebody could go home now, put the white clothes on, and come back and sit in the lesson. That doesn't mean you're in ihram, you're about to do hajj. Ihram isn't the white clothes. Ihram is your intention that you make. The intention you make to go into the rites of hajj or umrah. That's when you are in a state of ihram. Somebody could put the white clothes on from Heathrow airport. That doesn't mean they, they, they are in ihram already. You're going to be in ihram once the airplane goes over the miqat, the boundary, and they make the announcement and you make your intention. Now you're in ihram. When you make your intention, not when you put your white clothes on. You might put your white clothes on well before you get to the miqat. So now it's mentioned in the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, that when he got to Dhul Huleifa, he actually stayed a night there. He got there for asr prayer. Prayed the asr there, prayed the maghrib there, prayed the irshah there, prayed the fajr there. Prayed the Dhuhr there of the next day as well. After the Dhuhr prayer, it is mentioned that the Prophet ﷺ made his intention and entered into being muhrim, in a state of ihram. So the scholars say, if when you arrive at the miqat, at the boundary, if you arrive and it is the time of an obligatory prayer, Dhuhr asr maghrib, then it is good and it is sunnah and it is uh, mustahab, it is preferred. That you pray the obligatory prayer, then make your intention to go into ihram. Just like the Prophet ﷺ did. He prayed the obligatory prayer of Dhuhr, then made his intention and went into ihram. That does not mean that there is a specific prayer to be prayed for your ihram. Some people think you have to pray before you can go into ihram. That's not the case. You don't have to. You could go there, put your ihram on and go straight away without praying. That's allowed. Some people think you have to pray to go into ihram. That isn't correct. But if you do get the opportunity, it's a farth prayer, that is time now, pray it and then go into ihram like the Prophet did. But not to say that there is an obligation for you to have to pray two raka'at or whatever before going into ihram. So a person goes into ihram. And once you go into ihram, we know that there are certain types of things you're not allowed to do then. You're not allowed to cut the nails. You're not allowed to cover the hair for the men, the head. You're not allowed to cut the the hair or the nails You're not allowed to wear fragrance Uh, Intercourse is not allowed These types of affairs, all of them are not allowed now Once you are in the state of ihram Many other things are mentioned too Uh, Hunting, for example You're not not allowed to hunt If you are in a state of ihram You can't, for example, if you're going now uh, And you get hungry on the way You decide we'll stop the bus and go hunt a rabbit And slaughter it and eat it It's impermissible if you're in the state of ihram, you're not allowed to hunt. You're not even allowed to tell someone else to go hunt something for you. So hunting is not allowed. The cutting of the nails, the hair, intercourse, fragrance, all of these things are not allowed now once you are in ihram. So now you're in ihram and you're going towards Makkah. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to recite the talbiya. La Inna This is the Talbiya. A person is supposed to recite that now all the way, carry on reciting it. For the men it is sunnah to raise their voices, but not in congregation. It's a mistake when 50, 60, 100 people get together, all of them together. That is not sunnah. It's mentioned in the hadith of Jabir, as Shaykh al Rahimahullah mentioned, when they went, different people were reciting different things. When the Prophet ﷺ went, they weren't all doing it all together. It wasn't together in congregation. So you don't recite all loud together in congregation. But everybody independently to yourself, you recite it loudly. You say it all loudly. That is sunnah for the men. As for the women, then obviously it may cause fitna, their voice amongst other people who are not mahram to them, so that is not uh, recommended. If they were alone somewhere, then they can raise their voices slightly too. But if they are amongst other people who are not mahram, then that causes fitna, so it is not correct to do so in front of the other people. So you recite this. Then when you arrive at Makkah, you begin with the tawaf. How do you begin the tawaf? You go to the black stone. You go initially to the black stone. If you are able to place your forehead upon the black stone that is mentioned, to do that. And kiss the black stone that is mentioned, to do that. If you can't put your forehead on it or kiss it, then you can touch it with your hand and kiss your hand. All of this from the sunnah as a worship to Allah, not as a worship to the black stone. That's why Umar ibn al-Khattab said, أَإِنِّي <laughs> أَنَّكَ I know that you're just a stone. I know that you are just a stone. لا تضر ولا تنفع You don't harm or bring any benefit. ولولا أني رأيت رسول الله ما قبلتك. And had I not seen the Prophet ﷺ kissing you, I wouldn't have kissed you. So this was to highlight to the people, this worship is not to the stone. It is a worship to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because it is sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ to do that. So you put your forehead upon it, kiss it. If you're not able to, then with your hand. And if you can't even do that, it's mentioned in the sunnah, you can touch it with a stick and kiss the stick. However, the scholars, they say in our times now, due to the busy uh, nature, the crowding, so many people, it isn't suitable to try to use a stick. Because then you might poke people in the face, etc. It isn't suitable with so much crowding now. So either you touch it with your forehead and kiss it or with your hand, but either after that, after that, you don't try to use a stick. Because of the crowding and how it could harm the people. And harming the people in that way, to try to touch it with a stick isn't befitting, it's not correct. If you can't do any of that then, you can make an indication. Make an indication to the stone. And say the takbir. After that then, once you've done that indication, you start walking around the Kaaba. And the Kaaba is supposed to be on your left hand side. The Kaaba is on your left hand side and you start walking around. In the first three stages... The first three circuits, you're supposed to do the ramal, which is walking quickly, fast. That doesn't mean running. It means walking quickly with short, quick footsteps. Short, quick footsteps. Not running with big leaps, but short, quick footsteps all the way around. Short and quick footsteps for the first three rounds. Also, when you go around and you come to the Yemeni corner, which is the corner before the black stone, then again you can touch that. If you're not able to touch it, then there is no indication you make to that. Touch it, otherwise nothing. Between the Yemeni corner and the black stone you recite the dua Rabbana Atina fid-dunya." This ayah from the Quran. You recite this ayah between the Yemeni corner and the black stone. That is one circuit. When you get to the black stone, again you try to touch it or you make the indication. And you do that seven times. What are you supposed to recite as you are going around? (laughs) Anything. Sunnah, du'as, some supplication that you know from the sunnah which is authentic, or recitation of the Quran, you can recite all of that as you are going around. There is no specific du'a when you are going around. And you do it by yourself. Again, all this thing that you see people, all of them, a hundred of them reciting together. The one at the front, he says something that everybody else behind copies him. That isn't the way to do it. You do it yourself, you learn some du'a and then you recite those. If you don't know anything, recite the Qur'an as you're going around, whatever you know. That's what you do. Then after you've done it seven times then, or in fact we've missed one point. For the men, what are you supposed to do as you go around? Uncover the right right arm. When you in tawaf, you uncover the right arm. Some people make a mistake as soon as they get to the miqat and they put their ihram on, straight away they put it under their right arm. And their right arm is uncovered all the way from the miqat. That's incorrect. You're supposed to only uncover the right arm when you do the tawaf. And when you finish, put it back on again. So when you finish the seven circuits, then where do you go? To Maqami Ibrahim. And that is where Ibrahim alayhi salam stood, that rock. Where Ibrahim alayhi salam stood on it when he was building the Kaaba to reach to the higher parts of the Kaaba to build it. That still is there, Maqami Ibrahim. The actual footsteps, that is not... Uh, it's not a necessity that they are the actual footsteps. Scholars have said this may not be the actual footsteps, but that rock, Maqam Ibrahim, generally that is where Ibrahim alayhi salam stood. So you're supposed to go behind that and pray two raka'at. In the first one you recite, قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ In the second one you recite, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أحد. When you finish that, then what do you do? When you finish the two raka'at behind Maqam Ibrahim, and if you don't find a space there, anywhere else behind is okay. Then once you finish the two what do you do? Zamzam. So you're supposed to go and drink zamzam. In some narrations it's mentioned, drink to your fill. Not just a sip, drink to your fill, a few cups. And pour some upon yourself as well. Once you've done that, then where do you go? Asafa, Marwa? No. You go back to the black stone first. Go back to the black stone and do one more indication back to the black stone and one more indication then you head towards as-safa wa- uh, and al-marwa firstly you head towards as-safa why because the prophet sallallahu said nabda'u Allahu bih kama that we will begin with that which Allah began with what did Allah begin with in the quran inna <speaking> in <Hebrew> as wal marwa min safa was mentioned first in the quran in the ayah. So the Prophet ﷺ said, We will begin with that which Allah began with. As-Safa was begun with first. So you head towards the mountain Safa. And now, obviously, it's not a big mountain anymore. It's crumbled, it's corroded. But it's still there. There is still the shape there. So you go towards As-Safa. And what do you recite as you are heading towards As-Safa? Inna Safa wal marwata misha'a'irillah. <laughs> Some scholars say just up to there. Other scholars say the full ayah. But up to there is sufficient. So you recite this ayah, "Inna Safa wal Marwa As you go to Safa, when you arrive at Safa, you climb up to the top, and you turn around to face the Kaaba. Climb to the top, turn to face the Kaaba, and then you start the du'a. You recite the du'a, the du'a which is. La ilaha You recite this dua. Once you've recited the dua, then what do you do? Then you make your own dua, whatever you want to make. Once you finish doing your own dua, then what do you do? Then you read this dua again. Once you've read this one now, then Make your own dua again. Then go back for the third time and read this dua again. Then after that you go down and head towards Al Marwa, the other side. But as you are heading towards Al Marwa, you will have seen there is a section where there are green lights. In that section there used to be a valley. It used to be a dip. In the time of the Prophet ﷺ even it existed. But now obviously it's made flat. But there used to be a dip, a, a type of valley in that area. That area you're supposed to run. Of course, for the women and the elderly, there's an exclusion. But otherwise, a person is supposed to run through that section. Why? We'll know why from the story of Ibrahim alayhi salam, Because Safa and Marwa, the Sa'i, it came from there. As Sheikh al Fawzan says. Um Ismail, the wife of Ibrahim a.s. and Ismail a.s., they were left there. You know the story. They were left there. And they had water and they had dates. And so the mother would eat from the do- uh, water and the dates and she would feed the child with the milk. After the water ran out and the dates ran out and the milk dried up, then they became thirsty. So then she began to look for water. She ran up a Safa to see if there is anything there, any water, any help. Nothing was found. So she came down to go back across to Marwa. As she came down to go back across the middle section where the green lights are now, there's a dip or a valley there. So when she got to that section, she ran across quickly. Because down in the dip and in the valley section, obviously there's no water and there's no help anywhere. So she wanted to get out of that area quickly. So, when she got to the dip and the valley section, she would run quickly to get out of that area to get back up across to Marwa. So, she looked around there, nothing. Came back towards Safa. And when she got to the valley bit, ran through the valley to get out of there quickly again to get back up to Safa. So, looked around again, nothing. Back the other way, nothing. Back the other way, nothing. So, now that's what you do. You go to Safa, then to Marwa, then to Safa, then to Marwa, Safa, Marwa, Safa, Marwa. You finish up on Marwa. That is the seventh circuit because if you start in Safa to go to Marwa, that's one. Marwa back to Safa, that's two. Back to Marwa, three, four, five, six, seven. You end up at Marwa. It's a mistake when people think you start from Safa, go to Marwa back to Safa, they say that's one. So then you end up doing 14. That's wrong. So you end up at Marwa. After you ended up there, then what do you have to do? Cut the hair or shave the hair. If you're doing the hajj, it's preferable to cut the hair, to leave some hair to shave on each day. So you cut some hair, and you have to cut it all across. Not as some people now, they grab a small piece there, just do one chop, they say, that's it, I've cut my hair. I'm finished. That isn't right. You're supposed to cut all the way around. For the women as well, they cut their hair. They can cut their hair too. But as the scholars say, the women get their hair from the bottom, from the back, uh, from the length and they cut from the bottom the size of a fingertip. Size of the fingernail. A fingernail size, a fingertip size. They can cut all the way across from the bottom the length of the hair. So that is now Umrah done. You can take your ihram off, you can relax. It's finished. Then on the 8th day of Dhul Hijjah, you're going to go back into... This is for Tamattu'. You're going to go back into the ihram and go where first? To Mina. You go to Mina first. And you stay the day in Mina. This is the 8th day, next Sunday. Next Sunday, the people will go to Mina. And they will pray Dhuhr there. And they will pray Asr there. And they will pray Maghrib there. And they will pray Isha there. And stay the night. And on Monday morning, next Monday morning, they will pray Fajr there. How are the prayers prayed whilst you are in Mina? Shortened, but not combined. You pray Dhuhr two Raka'at by itself. When Asr time comes, two for Asr. When Maghrib time comes, 3 for Maghrib. When Isha' time comes, 2 for Isha'. All the prayers in their times but shortened. So on the ninth day, which is next Monday now, the people will pray Fajr in Mina. Then they will go towards Arafah. Next Monday is the day of Arafah. They will go towards Arafah. And then they stay in Arafah for the day. And they pray Dhuhr and Asr combined and shortened at the time of Dhuhr. They combine and shorten Dhuhr and Asr at the time of Dhuhr. And then there is a khutbah. A khutbah will be delivered by one of the scholars. A khutbah is delivered at that time. And then you stay the day in Arafah making dua. It's a day of dua, a day of supplication, a day of forgiveness from Allah. So you sit there and you use your time wisely doing that. It is not correct what people do, spend three or four or five hours of their day trying to get to the mountain. Jablur rahmah trying to get to this mountain, it is not from the sunnah for you to have to get there and to spend four or five hours using that time in the crowds, wasting it and not being able to make dua. Instead, it's better for you to stay in your tent and use all that three or four hours making dua rather than walking in the crowds to get to the mountain. It's a mistake. People think you have to go to the mountain. You don't have to. You stay in your tent, you make your dua and you use your time wisely. Then after sunset, not before sunset, it's not allowed to leave Arafah before sunset after sunset you leave Arafah and go where? to Muzdalifah once you arrive at Muzdalifah what is to be done? you pray Maghrib and Nisha combined after you've combined them what do you do then? then it is the Sunnah to go to sleep combine your prayer witr, go to sleep that's the sunnah of the Prophet Not To stay up in Muzdalifah, relaxing and talking till midnight or one o'clock, two o'clock. It is sunnah of the Prophet to combine the prayers when you arrive in Muzdalifah, and then after that, take rest and go to sleep. Then in the morning, as soon as Fajr time starts, the Prophet woke up, as it's mentioned in the Hadith, and prayed the Fajr at the beginning time. Then after that, you make du'a and you supplicate up until the sun is about to arise. When the sun is about to rise, not after it rises, just when it's about to rise, you leave Mina and start, uh, You leave Muzdalifah, sorry, and you start heading towards Mina. Because the Mushrikeen, when they used to do it in the Jahiliyyah, they used to stay in Muzdalifah till after sunrise. So the Prophet ﷺ said, pray Fajr early, stay and make Dua, but just before sunrise leave, and go towards Mina. As you're going towards Mina, you pick up seven stones as well. Each of those pebbles the size of a chickpea, not big rocks, size of chickpeas. Pick up those as you are going. Then you go to al-jamratul kubra, the, the big pillar, only the big pillar. So now what day are we on? Where are we? We're on Eid day, Tuesday, next Tuesday. On that day, people will pray their fajr i muzdalifa. Then just before sunrise, they'll go towards the big stone, the big pillar. And they will stone it seven times. How do you stone? You take the stone, raise your hand, do the takbir, and you throw it. Allahu Akbar, throw one. Allahu Akbar, throw the next. And each one like that, you throw it. Nowadays, there's no crowding. There's five levels where you stone. You can walk right up to the pillar, casually. Some people, they might walk right up to the pillar, right next to it. You can look in, you can see all the pebbles falling down there. Some people, they might just go right up to it and just put the pebble in. Is that okay or not? Even if you go right up to it, you can't just walk in and put your hand in and put the pebble down. You have to throw it in. It has to be thrown in. Even if you're right next to it, you flick it in, you throw it in. You don't just put it in. So that is the stoning, the seven stones. Then what are you supposed to do? Then the slaughtering. Then you're supposed to slaughter. And nowadays it's all organized. You can go there, give them the money. There's a big slaughterhouse. They'll do it for you. So that slaughtering is done. Then after that you're supposed to shave the head for the men they shave their head then once you've done that now you've done the stoning of the big pillar you've done the slaughtering you've shaved the head now you're allowed to go out of your ihram you can take your ihram off that's finished you can cut your nails you can put fragrance on you can do all of that now but you can't do intercourse that still isn't allowed Everything else is allowed. Now take your clothes off, put different clothes on, fragrance, everything, apart from intercourse. That is only allowed once you do the fourth thing on that day. The fourth thing on that day is what? The tawaf al-ifadah. So you do that tawaf, tawaf al-ifadah it's called. Once you've done that, you are completely out of ihram now. Now you can do as you please, even intercourse. Then on the 11th, 12th day, you have to go and do the stoning of all three pillars. You go after the middle of the day, after when the sun goes beyond the middle point, after the zawal. You go to the small pillar, stone every seven of them, then you turn to the Kaaba and make dua. Then go to the second pillar, seven of them, turn to the Kaaba, make dua. Third pillar, stone seven of them, then go. No dua after the third one. The next day, the same thing, after the zawal, after the middle point of the day, the zenith. You go and do the seven, turn, make du'a, second one, seven, turn, make du'a, third one, seven, go home. If you want to leave after that day, you can go before Maghrib. If you're there after Maghrib, you stay till the 13th day as well. And on the 13th day again, you do the stoning, then you leave. Then all you have left to do is one more thing, which is the tawaf al there To do the final farewell tawaf. Uh, and that's when you end the rites. So that is a summary, very briefly. You should get the book of sheik al-Albani, uh, get the book of sheik al-Albani, uh, which explains the Hajj and the Umrah. Explains the Hajj and the Umrah. and It's a good book and it explains all of the types of innovations that occur in that uh, Hajj and Umrah that some people do. So we'll just briefly uh, take some questions quickly, we're out of time. Uh, there's one that says, The zakat one, we'll come to it later. These zakat ones, they require detail. They require detail as to what you can do and how to do. InshaAllah, we'll try and come back to that one. But the ones related to the hajj and the umrah for now, can I fast on the day of Arafah if I still have some days of fasts to make up from Ramadan? There is some issue regarding this, as scholars have mentioned. However, generally speaking, if a person has days left to make up from Ramadan, it is still allowed to fast on the day of Arafah. You can fast the day of Arafah and make the intention for Arafah. And then you can make up your days afterwards. It is allowed. It is allowed. Even though it would have been better, you've had time now. There's been enough time, two months after Ramadan finished. A person should hasten to finish this, making up what's left. Should hasten to do it. But if you haven't done it and it's allowed, you're allowed to make them up all the way till next Ramadan. It's allowed. So in that case, it is allowed. You can make the intention for Arafah, fast that day, and then afterwards make sure you hasten to finishing off the obligatory ones you have left as well. But it is not ideal, not recommended to make two intentions. It's not ideal for a person to think to himself, I'll fast on the day of Arafah, but also I'll intend one of the days I missed from Ramadan. That isn't suitable. Don't do that. There's a much, there's a difference of opinion and many issues regarding two intentions. It's better make your intention for Arafah, afterwards do your days that you got left then if you haven't done them already. And even now, these days now, Today, tomorrow, these next eight days before Arafah you can make up your obligatory ones. Your obligatory ones that you had left from Ramadan do them now. These are excellent days to do them. The days of Dhul Hijjah are days when you should worship Allah. So if you have obligatory ones left, this is the perfect time. This next week up until uh, Arafah uh, is on the Monday. So up until next Sunday, these next six days, seven days you should fast. If you have days left to make up. Excellent time to do it. And then on the day of Arafa, just intend Arafa, And then after that, go back and finish off the other days after Eid. Uh, if you do the Hajj Tamattu', I think the question is saying, in between the... Once you do the Hajj Tamattu', we said you do the Umrah, and then you come out of Ihram. Then you go back into Ihram afterwards. In that time in between when you finished your Umrah, and you're going to start your Hajj in the time in between... Are you allowed to cut the nails and the hair and everything? Yes. Because in that time between, you're not in ihram anymore. In that time between, you're free. Once you finish the umrah, your ihram is finished. It's only going to come back on the 8th of Dhul-Hijjah. So in between, you can cut your nails, you can do what you want. Then on the 8th day, when you go back into, into uh, ihram, that's when you uh, are back into the rules again. So we'll have to conclude there because we're out of time and the keeper uh, requests we leave too. So we'll leave that for there now and inshallah we'll continue from next time uh, with Arba'een and Nawabi again.